The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, situation vacant at the Times as editor James Harding calls it quits. Plus, why Rebecca Brooks is the £10 million woman and the curious case of the Culture Secretary and the Daily Telegraph. As if that wasn't enough, all you need to know about the small screen, including what were the most popular TV shows of 2012. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'll be joined later by The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost, but I'm delighted to say here with me in the pod are The Guardian's head of media and tech, Mr Dan Saber, and Media Guardian reporter, Lisa O'Carroll. Welcome both. Hello. Now, I was off last week. I should say thank you very much to uh, Mr. Hugh Muir for uh, stepping in uh, at the last minute. Um, but, you know, Dan, you take a few days off and what happens? Everything changes, as Take That once said, uh, particularly at The Times. Yeah, changing times indeed. Um, so after five years, James Harding's on his way out. And, uh, uh, you know, what a way to go. A lot of speculation about uh, Harding's future over the last few weeks. Uh, strong belief that there's going to be a restructuring over uh, at that pile of whopping. Times title is losing perhaps a million pound a week at the sort of top end estimate. So given that there's a public company on the way, a separately traded publishing company, real need to sort of rationalise costs there. That's definitely part of the backdrop but the actual timing a great surprise because I think James Harding was sort of one minute negotiating with Oliver Letwin I think only early this week about you know post Leveson reform if you will and then there's a phone call at 10am with Rupert Murdoch uh, on the Wednesday and by half three suddenly a staff meeting and he's quit and he makes it very clear at the top of his address that he's he may have resigned but it's not voluntary it's become clear to him that News Corporation Rupert Murdoch really wants a new editor of the Times and so he's decided to resign so lisa it was it's quite unusual tell us about the circumstances of uh, of, of J- the way james harding announced his departure this week well staff got an email um shortly before half three yesterday on uh wednesday uh saying james would like to address all staff on the seventh floor and i think immediately everybody knew he was falling on his sword apparently it was quite emotional his deputy editor keith blackmore hugged him was you know tears seen you know, there was reaction on Twitter, a lot of people saying they were shocked, they were saddened, he was a great loss, couldn't have been a better editor. I mean, these things generally get said in the immediate aftermath of a resignation. But I think even today people are speaking, you know, it's kind of depressed attitude in the Times and a lot of fear about um, what's coming down the tracks. I think that's what people are more scared about. It's not necessarily who's the new editor, but what is Murdoch going to be doing? A story on the front page of today's Times, uh, uh, stick story on, I think, column five, uh, and, a, and a spread inside. I mean, James Harding's complete resignation speech. I mean, really sort of, um, you know, extended coverage, you know, quite, quite. I think all, all newspapers get emotional about when an editor departs, but, but very extended coverage, I think, by the stands of any newspaper. And also really interesting, a piece about the role or non-role of the so-called independent directors who were there to sort of protect the editor suppose in these situations and in theory although I think actually in practice doesn't amount to anything the independent directors could have stepped in and had the editor so wished formed a human shield against the proprietor um, because they have to ratify any change in you know the appointment of an editor and the departure of any editor but I think I mean in practice if Rupert Murdoch wants to change editor and after five years you could say any editors had a fair crack of the whip then I mean, yeah, how can anyone Murdoch say no? Him, as Murdoch said himself, and it was quoted in the Times today, as he said at Levison, you, you know, it, it, on practical terms, if the newspaper is losing money, it's up, up to the proprietor to save the paper. And if that means moving the editor, he'll move the editor. So I, I think everybody agrees the independent 
board of the Times Newspapers Limited as a bit of a fig leaf. And suggestions, uh, one for both of you, this that the uh, his departure might lead might pave the way for for a merger of the Times and Sunday Times into a seven day operation. But that that's that's not simple for for all sorts of reasons. I think that's slightly overstated at this point. Certainly from what we're hearing, there are the famous 1981 undertakings. They were what Mur- Rupert Murdoch signed when he bought the titles, and it's not a long document. But one of the things they say in almost biblical terms is there shall be a Times and a Sunday Times, two separate papers so having an editor-in-chief is verboten uh, we're absolutely told so if and we'll come on to this more later but if John Witherow for example were to be named as Times editor he would not be editor-in-chief of both titles that's what we were being told very clearly yeah and as people have been been remarking you know of of all the sort of the publishers who've got two a daily and a Sunday the Sunday Times and Times are unusual the Sunday Times is the more senior of the two titles and um, I was speaking to somebody earlier who would be in a, a fairly good position to know, but, but said one of the things that Murdoch had a problem with the Times was that James didn't make any really, really serious attempt to cut fat out of the Times. I know everybody, all newspapers are facing you know, difficult times financially, partly because of the internet, partly because of the recession. But I think there is a feeling that there are some big redundancy numbers going to be announced maybe this week, next week. Yeah, News International wasn't, you know, there were some results in News International and, you know, the whole group that includes the, actually, News International including The Sun and also actually HarperCollins as well, which is sort of consolidated for this purpose. And, I mean, they, they made a, the whole, collectively made a thumping loss. Now, a lot of that was to do with, you know, various write-offs and I think £140 million of legal bills, you know, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, this was, well, this still is the number one newspaper, national newspaper group in the country. Uh, HarperCollins is a fair-sized book publisher too, I think number three, but anyway, big. And so this should be a sort of decently profitable set of assets. Well, Lisa, um, James Harding leaves at the end of the year. Dan's already mentioned um, Sunday Times editor John Witherow possibly as a, as a contender, but who's in the running? Who are the, runners, who, who are the runners and riders to, to take over? There's a lot of speculation. There are insiders, outsiders. There's talk about Ben Preston, who was deputy editor under Robert Thompson, um, who now left to become editor of the Radio Times. People like Camilla Cavendish, Veronica Wadley, ex-editor of the Evening Standard, who is herself an independent, a director on the independent um, board of the Times. Ian King, business editor, Danny Finkelstein, associate editor, chief leader writer, both two insiders who are being spoken of as having a chance, but I think both rank outsiders. Another very definite rank outsider is Will Lewis, but it's got to be considered he's got journalistic pedigree, ex-FT, ex-Telegraph, ex-business editor of the Sunday Times. His problem is he spent the last year getting people arrested as, uh, you know, the executive member of the Management Standards Committee. Um, who, am I, who else am Martin I? Martin Ivins, I think, at the Sunday yeah. Times, which certainly has gone for the job before, I think would have a, you know, would have a good claim on it. Oh, but Nicola Chiel. Nicola Chiel was the other. Um, you know, we haven't had a female editor of the Times ever, and she's held in very high esteem. It's and what chance Robert Peston? Robert Peston has been spoken of as a, you know, Interesting. He had a big bust up with James Murdoch a few years ago. Well, that that's since healed, and obviously James Murdoch's not really that involved in whopping affairs. I, I, I think Robert Peston would be could easily be talked about as a credible editor of uh, any number of national Maybe newspapers. Too for Murdoch. Yeah, I think his his politics might well be there. Maybe maybe the Financial Times when it comes up. Maybe. Well, that's enough. Looking forward. Uh, yeah, let's look back. Uh, Dan, give us your give us your two minute take on James Harding's Times legacy. Well, I worked there, so for a, for a good chunk of that time, I think. Uh, look, look, James moved the leaders onto page two. I think was one of the sort of big features in one newspaper of the year in one of those awards quite early on. I think partly on the back of that. So, so it certainly expanded the role of comment. It was a very difficult five-year period, you could argue, because once the once the phone hacking story went 
you know, went mega, I think, in the first couple of years, you know, the first period of his editorship, the Times, the Commonwealth, many papers really, apart from The Guardian, didn't really write very much about phone hacking, but it's a difficult story to write because it's about your own company, and I think anyone, you know, people should be honest about that. It's very hard to write stories about your own newspaper and your own company when you're there. I think in the um, uh, when finally the sort of phone hacking story went mainstream, it was able to sort of the Times was able to sort of cover it much in the way of everyone else, and in a way follow the company line, which has finally to dis- disassociate itself from the from the sins of the past. But I think yeah, other things were very difficult. I mean, it's been noted that circulation fell, but frankly, it's fallen at the Guardian and other newspapers. Uh, I don't. There was no magic bullet there. The Times remains firmly the number two in the broadsheet marketplace, and no closer to catching up with the Telegraph, even though it's at a reduced price now. I think that some of the big stories were done elsewhere. You know, the MP, MP's expenses is one example. I think the CD found its way into the Times and they didn't, or they were in negotiations, but they didn't think much of it. And there was a very dismissive sort of Mellon Sorbet leader when the Telegraph had bought the, uh, bought the expenses CD and started running it big. And the initial response to the Times, I think, was to sort of say, well, this expensive stuff is a bit overrated. It actually was out, but out of step with the public mood, I think, in that respect. Um, there have been camp- good campaigns on cycling and tax recently but um, you know the Guardian had a big hit with phone hacking and I suppose on the five year view you sort of say what are the big hits and uh, I sort of touched on some but there have been big hits elsewhere and perhaps arguably the papers is it a bit too closely associated with Cameron and Osborne is, is James Harding I think it's sort of, you know is he a sort of Cameroon really a socially liberal Cameroon and I think the really interesting question is what's Rupert Murdoch thinking where's Britain going in the next few years what kind of character does he want editing the times you know james harding to go re- rewind to 2007 2008 countries maybe going blue james murdoch's come in let's different kind of character needed for that time now not sure maybe somebody more more of an outsider more removed from government someone would be very critical i think and Harding, I think, is going to get a payoff. Is it 1.3 million? Is that a speculation? Nobody know, no one knows, but I mean, two, three times his salary, make up his salary. <laughs> Which is uh, not as much as another former high profile News International executive uh, received. We found out this week, this was Rebecca Brooks, of course, uh, and the amount of money she got paid, uh, well, it's, it's been going up over the month, isn't it? From, uh, from what, we, what we thought initially to what we then thought and what we now find out, Lisa. 10.8 million. But before I go into that, I'll it, just say. I was, it could just, be her. It could be her. I was speaking to somebody quite senior who said the benchmark at News International was generally if you had behaved and your everyone was leaving on good terms, it was t- twice your salary or twice your twice your package, your pension, the works. Hence, you know, she would have been ex- expected. This person said to get about two million. So I think we were all surprised when the FT reported, you know, a good few months back that it was seven million. So ten point eight million took everybody by surprise. Plus the office in Marylebone. That was, I think, that has had a lot of people um, scratching their heads. What was that about? It sounded a bit Blairite to me, you know, because her, her powers is her powers given through her office, whereas Blair is a politician, whether he's a PM or not. And he continued; he had a network of people, including Clinton, Bush, and all the rest, and a possibility of a job in the Middle East. Whereas when she left, it was under under a cloud. And in a lot of papers, I mean, call me a cynic, but in a lot of papers, that story was overshadowed by the James Harding story. And I mean, anyway, look, I mean, could it have been a coincidence? I don't know. Although I did see in the Metro, they, the Metro, which is the paper that most folks read, dare one say it, did splash on Rebecca Brooks's big uh, compensation for loss of office package, as they say. I think a lot of it, uh, sorry, John, a lot of it's taken up by legal fees, I think. And she's um, got no shortage of those and they'll be paying those, I think, forever, aren't they? The uh, legal fees connected with 
phone hacking and so forth. Does this have any impact, Dan? Do you think any sort of wider resonance? People think, oh, you know, News International, you know, done it again uh, in terms of, you know, sort of sheer PR in, in the same way that we saw, you know, the backlash against the BBC with, uh, you know, Entwistle's uh, a rather smaller, in fact, 20 times smaller payoff. I think the enormous payoff is is got to be really damaging, actually. And they are pretty lucky they kind of minimised that with the departure of the Times editor. Because if it was Barclays Bank or, I mean, British Airways, I mean, 10.8 million is a fantastically huge sum of money. And Rebecca Brooks is facing charges. Uh, and of course, everyone's innocent until they're proven guilty. But she's been, you know, she's she's been charged on matters relating to alleged corrupt payments, uh, on phone hacking, on an obstruction of justice. So... It doesn't seem, you know, I think if you're sort of, you know, buying the sun every day or, you know, I don't know, or or even the Times, it's just a ludicrously high sum of money for, uh, you know, compared to what ordinary folks own. Well, there's no shortage of newspaper news around this week. There's also, um, Dan, the curious case, as I mentioned in the intro, of, um, well, the Daily Telegraph and uh, its story about Culture Secretary uh, Maria Miller, and in particular what Maria Miller's office had to tell the Telegraph uh, when it put this story to her. Give us it to us in a, in a nutshell. Well, the Telegraph doing an expensive story on Maria Miller. They've got the files. It's their special subject. And uh, saying that she was claiming money for a home that her parents were actually living in, and that's contrary, contrary to the rules. I, I mean, this seems to be a very arguable point, but, uh, I mean, sorry, when I say that she was claiming money for her, her parents were living in it, she was also, you know, using it for, you know, she was using it part of the week as well. But I think, you know, the fact they were all living in it together is arguably... Contra to the rules and then anyway so telegraph published a story and it sort of it, it, it lands and it gets some interest but perhaps not as much follow as it might and, and and then on sort of day two they they publish another story saying that special advisor threatened our reporter uh, uh, that's Maria miller special advisor saying you know uh, you might want to think about this your editor's negotiating on this sort of levison stuff with maria and do you really want to do this now was the implied message and then as sort of as a day three and then they sort of add in for good measure that Craig Oliver, uh, Cameron's spin doctor in chief, rang Tony Gallagher and said, in the gentlest language, the same thing, although the Telegraph described it as threatening. And I'm going to find it amusing, the idea that Tony Gallagher is a... Uh, Tony Gallagher will feel threatened uh, by uh, by anyone or anything, but anyway, uh, so there it was, and, and and you know the Telegraph just reveling and having a punch up with the government over, frankly, I mean an interesting Maria Miller story, but otherwise you know not so much. A few you know a few sharp phone calls, if you will, and making great virtue out of it, saying, look, we're not scared. This is why we shouldn't have you know ministers or anyone regulating the press fine that's a fair point they may want to make but you know if Cameron thought he had bought good relations between the Telegraph uh, and maybe the Mail as a result of his sort of we're not going to have a Leveson bill then he can clearly think again So Lisa I mean forget about the Leveson inquiry the future of press regulation it all turns on Maria Miller's expenses but um, uh, what did you make of it? It, it seems clumsy handling at best and but I mean it's got to the point now where I think uh, hacked off did they on on Thursday call for um, Maria Miller to be recused, which is the great the most fashionable word at the moment? They you know they're borrowing, uh, frankly, jumping on the BBC's bandwagon here. But uh, but anyway, said so that Maria Miller should be uh, recused from um, taking any role in uh, in deciding what the future of press regulation should look like. Yeah, they had a moment in the song. There was a um, a uh, Levison um, was speaking down in Australia, and there was a 
press conference or a breakfast conference held by um, one of the uh, media solicitors, Finers, um, Stevens Innocent and hacked off were on a panel subsequent to that and said they thought they were going to um, call for her to be recused and they slightly rode back when they put out their official statement. But their argument is that Cameron Miller, no politician should be involved in regulation. They're still sticking to their line that there should be a statutory, um, a, a, some sort of body um, which is separate to politics and newspapers to um, verify or certify the performance of the regulator. So they're using the te- the argument that the Telegraph has to their own ends, which is bit, bit, the, bit the heroic, bit heroic that to argue that the politicians shouldn't be involved in the negotiations about creating a regulator, but there should be a statute, which by definition involves politicians. Well, where are we? What's the latest with the? Uh, I mean, the, uh, after Leveson, he told the editors to go away and come up with their own system of, um, of of regulation, and Cameron said, "Well, you know, I expect them to do this. Otherwise, you know, we might have to bring in statute." But uh, how are the editors getting along? Are they anywhere nearer coming up with a solution that will uh, that will appease what satisfy both them and the politicians? It's going a bit slower. It's getting a bit muddier, murkier, and things have drifted a bit. And we're waiting for two things really. Uh, firstly, for Oliver Letwin, Cameron's policy fixer in chief, to come up with the sort of ways of of, of, of dealing with solidifying the regulator, uh, the revamped PCC, finding an independent body to certify it, but one that's constructed not through statute. So the big idea is to use a royal charter, sort of thing used for medieval towns and cities. And we're waiting for Letwin to produce that rabbit and some related rabbits about how to um, ensure that if the revamped regulator sets up a kind of cheap court for libel and privacy cases to ensure that's recognised as a proper court. So that's going to happen next Tuesday. The Letwin plan for the um, who's going to guard the Guardian, it looks like, or the Guardians, um, not with the newspaper, that's the revamped PCC, is to have some panel of the great and good sort of eminent, I don't know, academics, masters of Oxbridge colleges, that sort of thing, um, seems to be the plan. So that's moving forward. Meanwhile, and my, this is an compli- increasingly complicated saga, uh, Labour have put down a bill because they're still pro-statutory, having a statutory backup, a law. Uh, Lib Dem Lord Lester has put down another bill because, you know, why have one when you can have two? Perhaps some of these bills will get some momentum in Parliament and there may be a vote. But I think in the end, the main line is what can, can I, if Oliver Letwin come up with something sensible and if the editors can actually sort of finally produce a sort of a formal, you know, written agreement, I think we'll have a deal that will stick. And I think the opposition will find it very hard to, to it's not so much whether they can force a vote in Parliament, maybe they can, um, but I, I think to force a bill through against a Prime Minister's wishes, that I think is pretty much impossible. Well, thanks very much, Dan and Lisa. That's all our newspaper news for now. We're back after this. It's time to turn our attention now to the small screen, and it's that list you've all been waiting for, the most viewed TV programmes of 2012. Now, Lisa, a marginally entirely unfair question. What was the number one TV programme of 2012? Got to be the opening ceremony of the Olympics. Well, you say that, but it's in fact the closing ceremony of the Olympics. Uh, Who'd who'd have thought that? Read your own website. No, I think people are obviously emotional, aren't they, about... um, about the loss of the Olympics. They didn't know how good it was going to be beforehand. They realised how sad they were when it had gone, perhaps. Uh, what a terrible injustice as well, that that, uh, that fantastically uh, acclaimed uh, opening ceremony is, is, uh, is, is put in its, its place most, by madness It was the most tweeted about, wasn't it? Twitter put out their trend. Yes. And it was the most tweeted about event. The Olympics. The opening, the opening ceremony, ceremony, yeah. Yeah, rightly so, rightly so, yeah. Looking down the list here, sport dominates, Olympics, Olympics, and then uh, England versus Italy, Diamond Jubilee concert, Britain's Got Talent, I'm tempted to say, if it wasn't for the Olympics, that it's all the usual suspects down there. are some familiar brands there. Coronation Street, More Euro, uh, yeah, no, Downton Abbey. Where's X Factor, though, John? 
Not not in the, not 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 very high up at all. I don't think it was a well. It was a poor year, wasn't it, for the X Factor? Yeah, I look viewing down forty percent. So I think that's one of the things that's, that, that's changed. I, those big sporting events are always at you know, at, at or near the top. I think it's a bit more of a mix between sport and entertainment. But I guess the Olympics changed everything. And what were they getting? Twenty six million or something? Huge numbers. That's right. That's right. Twenty four point five million was the uh, was the share, was the audience for the uh, Olympics closing ceremony. Pipping the 24.2 that watched the opening ceremony. But in 16th place, uh, there's a, a new a new originated entertainment show. Makes its debut in the top 20. Do you know what that is? Red or black? No desperate stuff for me. Yeah. <laughs> well, similar ilk. Lisa? I'll tell I'm you what it is. I'm just nodding here. I don't know. You're mouthing it to me and you're absolutely right, Lisa. Yes, it's The Voice UK. Of course. Who'd 16th? have thought that? Yeah, 11.9 million. I would have sunk without trace. Well, it did eventually, didn't it? But uh, you know, it, it's doing well in America. It's doing very well in America, and I think giving Simon Cowell a rather hard time over there. I can speak for us all when I say I'm looking forward to the uh, very keenly anticipating the second series over here. The chairs are going to swivel even more. Your silence speaks volumes, uh, panelists. <laughs> uh, we can't. We can't wait to. Uh, here we go. The X Factor. Uh, although this, is, this isn't the final, in all fairness, uh, but that uh, sneaks in at twentieth place, eleven point three million. Uh, yeah, the final th- did rather better, but. I think the final, I think it's a little bit less, but when you add in the consolidated, you know, the, all the catch-up and plus one and all that jazz, I think it will creep over the line and get in the top 20. But it was just a poor... Uh, yeah, I, I think that's one of the rating stories of the year, I think, that the decline of the X Factor is, you know, two years ago, it was sort of, you know, 15 million type territory. I mean, huge numbers. And to have lost 6 million viewers in a couple of years, I think it was basically sort of 2 million viewers are gone this year. It's not good. And, and clearly there's going to have to be a revamp and the rest of it. And you can also see, in just um, if you look at the tabloids, they are still fascinated with Cheryl Cole. You know, the uh, Sun on Sunday um, splash, I think, on her 1.7 million claim for Series 2 in America, which she didn't, you know, she didn't even make Series 1. I mean, she was the star, wasn't she, along with Simon Cowell? The dynamics were just just missing. This is what they, Cheryl Cole back next year, but cure in a, in a, in a, in a single stroke. Well, it's, it's the last year of uh, Cal's ITV deal, isn't it? In, in 2013, so it's the last BGT uh, and the last X Factor next year. So presumably there'll be uh, frantic rene- renegotiations going on, or should they just, should they call it quits? Should they go out on a, should they go out on a low or a low-ish? <laughs> they're not, there's still huge shows. I think there's, True. I think their share is about 33% uh, of the X Factor this, this run. I mean, 9 million is still a fantastic, you know, number on Saturday night. I mean, Archie's natural share might be, what well, I don't know, 20, but under 20%, 17, 18%. So you, you know, it's still doing the business. So I, I you know, no, I think it wasn't that long ago that Strictly was on the ropes and people thought it might, you know, uh, it had nowhere to go. And now Strictly's beaten the X Factor, uh, I think about half a million this time round. So, you know, in, things can turn around in telly. Uh, you know, decline is not inevitable. And just to show we're down with the kids, we don't just watch TV. Oh, no. Uh, can you tell us what the top trending TV program was on Google Zeitgeist? Yep. No, I'll tell you. It was Mike the Knight. <laughs> Mike the Knight? Yep. Who uh, fixed our dishwasher. Uh, last week, I think. No, no. Uh, he is the uh, CBB's uh, character. Medieval uh, adventure character, the, indeed. Well done, yes. Who battles um, dragons and uh, trolls and uh, hangs out with his Viking buddies. And sells lots of toys. That's right. Free uh, Christmas. Apparently, George Edmonds was not aware of this character uh, the, the night before transmission. <laughs> uh, but talking of which, slightly as we do, Dan, uh, next week, uh, serious stuff at the BBC. It's the long-awaited Pollard Inquiry. 
Well, we hope so. I mean, they've got a lot of work. Uh, uh, we think it's going to come out on Tuesday, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was delayed, and I wouldn't even be surprised if it was delayed after Christmas because they've run it as a sort of mini Leveson, and the legal this, that, and the other that's gone round it has made it extraordinarily complicated and long-winded. But, yeah, look, we hope to see a report. I think if we see a report, frankly, the BBC's tied itself in so many knots about whether... You know, the Newsnight Jimmy Savile programme should have gone out or not. My gut tells me that there will be more blood, more resignations, more recriminations, you know, quite a lot, you know, quite a lot more. You know, at the same time as Pollard, are also going to get the Macquarie report or a bit more detail on that, which is into the, into the even more seriously flawed, if you will, um, McAlpine investigation on Newsnight. That was the one that was actually published and misidentified Lord McAlpine and wrongly linked him to allegations of child sex abuse and we'll get you know, that's been a quicker process but there may be disciplinaries involved in that and and, and the same again but the one plus for the beep is if you can get it all done by christmas at least um it helps sort of they can you know wash the floors down and tony hall can come in and no doubt there's an opera about this where there's a lot of blood that gets removed lisa who are the, who are the key figures here whose futures are potentially being decided well the editor of Newsnight, the head of news I mean, it's just been an extraordinary year if you think of, you know, who in the industry has been left unscathed or what organisation. Um, you know, the Leveson inquiry has touched every single newspaper, BBC, you know, who would have thought the three director generals in a year. I think, Don, is absolutely right. The Macquarie report is probably going to have far more ramifications because that was such a serious libel. Whereas the um, Savile report, you could probably editorially, you know, you could have an opinion, but either opinion would be correct. I think, at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the other question... I, th- I think the decision not to broadcast, uh, despite all the hoo-ha, I think, was sort of, you know, is arguable. I think the thing that no one can understand is why Peter Rippon didn't give his team more time. I, I think the slightly harder part might be a more sort of technical point, which is once you sort of setting aside the journalism, if you see this as an allegation of sort of sexual abuse on BBC premises... Uh, shouldn't somebody have sort of raised the alarm at that point? Uh, you know, now we know that. I mean, you know, another gr- gruesome set of even more gruesome statistics about Jimmy Savile coming out this week. But literally every time the police update us about Jimmy Savile, the amount of sort of serious sexual offences, rapes, even that um, you know he's alleged to have committed, just just saw. Well, there's more on this story as it develops, of course, at MediaGuardian.co.uk. Dan and Lisa, thanks very much. It's time to talk TV now with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost. Hello. Wonderful to see you. My TV at home, my big telly, yeah. is permanently stuck on CBeebies. <laughs> what? Like you can't change the channel at I all? I can't change it. I've got the planner, but I, I'm rapidly exhausting it. <laughs> so, so, so by the end of the week, you'll be stuck entirely on CBeebies, basically. Yeah, it's getting so bad, I'm thinking about watching The Secrets or Wonders of the Solar System, which is, <laughs> is one of my PVR classics. Although that is the thing. Maybe everyone should have to do that before the New Year. It's like clear out all the things you've recorded and you have no intention of ever watching from your PVR. Terrible times. Yeah, terrible times. That's, that's season two of Walking Dead for me. Uh, I know I will never get to watch it. I might just give up and go straight to series three that everyone tells me is brilliant. I've got a very long history of the cinema that was on more four. Uh, it celebrated its first anniversary on the set <laughs> top, on the box uh, last, last week. So I watched one. <laughs> one very good. Uh, but more importantly, uh, this weekend, it's the, uh, there's a finale of a, 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 quite a popular... BBC Four um, subtitled uh, crime thriller. 
Well, there is. There's this show that we've never talked about before Tell called us about The it. Killing. Oh, The I Killing. Mean, the Killing, I know. I've hardly written a word about it since it launched. Uh, yes, it comes to an end. Uh, the finale of season three and indeed the whole trilogy on Saturday night on BBC Four. I've seen it and I'm desperate not to give anyone any spoilers. I'm doing a complete poker face. So you've uh, seen it and I've not even seen last week. So we're miles apart. Yes, yes, we are. Yes, totally. You know, I'm sort of, you know, at the end having an emotional reaction, but I can't because there's no one to emote with, basically. I can't wait for Saturday night to come so I can actually discuss it with somebody. But I think as a whole, I'm trying to talk very generally now. I think sort of... Until she was killed, I thought it was good. (laughs) Lots of people, I think, and me included, think this is an improvement on series two. Which uh, got a bit mental in places, I think, you know, sort of bobbing around in Afghanistan. So I think it's an improvement on two, but I think there's lots of echoes of of season one, which, you know, I think it, you can look at it one way and say this is, you know, meant to be like this. This is the whole idea is that it echoes season one. Or you can look at it and just go, actually, this is a bit weird that you have repeated an awful lot of ideas uh, quite heavily. And for me, this time around, the political action hasn't really quite worked. Uh, it's felt like a bolt-on to to the action uh, rather than sort of entangled in it. Trolls was great, wasn't he? Well, he was, he was. And But I think really what was going on with that was, you know, that was a 20-episode season arc and, you know, some of the episodes were utterly mad and, you know, didn't really make any sense and just took you off down some blind alley for the sake of it. And, um, you know, arguably it was four eps too long. But the thing here is actually in 10 episodes, that's not really that long to get to know any of the politicians. And that's slightly where it's fallen down for me. And I, I don't care that much about them. My Brick's crush is, is, is not going away. Oh, no, definitely not. I've, I've met him in real life. And I'm, what I'm glad to say is he can smile. He, he was smiley and charming, which is something you would probably never guess from The Killing, where he basically looks at all times like he's chiselled out of granite. Yeah, he went, uh, he went on holiday to Easter Island once, and they thought he'd um, they, they thought he'd disappeared. <laughs> but uh, you know. uh, yes, um, because he. Moving on, <laughs> you know, Christmas Day highlights. Uh, surely, uh, apart from Downton Abbey and Call the Midwife again, uh, is uh, the Snowman and the Snow Dog, which uh, I haven't seen, but you have. Yes, although it's on Christmas Eve. Oh, is it? Yes, so it's your unless Christmas you tape Eve. it. <laughs> yeah, unless and then you, you can, tape it exactly. You can make, yes. <laughs> and then you can make your own schedule up on Christmas Day. Wouldn't so, that be great if you could do that? Some sort of, <laughs> be anyway, amazing. Carry on. Uh, yes, so the Snowman and the Snow Dog. Awful um, title. Why is that awful? It's for children. The it's Snowman awful. and the Snow Dog. Just call it the Snow Dog. Well, well, no, I don't think that's the point. Actually, I okay, think, okay, I, I, you know. I think it's fine. So I think it's quite a bold thing to do, to basically think, you know, the snowman, that thing we put on every year for 20 years, it always does brilliantly, and it's a real classic and everyone loves it. Let's do that and maybe have another go at it and do it differently and update it. I mean, it's not an update, it's a new story. But I still think it's quite a bold thing for Channel 4 to do, and it could have gone really quite horribly wrong. And in fact, it's charming. I I think it's a real success. So I took my nephew's... Uh, who are quite little to see it. They are nearly three and nearly six, I think. And they were absolutely charmed by it. They love the snow dog. I mean, it's quite sad, and there will be a few questions, I think, for parents, you know. uh, But then the snowman itself is quite sad, actually, if you think about it. Uh, I feel like 
it doesn't have that walking in the air sort of moment. Although hilariously, my nephew did just start singing Walking in the Air as his own soundtrack when that bit happened. Oh, that's so, beautiful. you know, that's kind of it. And I, and I sort of felt that bit was slightly missing and the song wasn't quite... What's, this, uh, what's the news of Walking on Four Legs? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Thanks. It's something that's just <laughs> not quite that memorable. Um, but it's, it's a lovely thing and, um, yeah, quite, quite, quite a joyful... Well, no, not joyful. Slightly sad, but lovely. That's what I mean. Everyone likes to cry at Christmas. That's why EastEnders is so popular, isn't it? Oh, God, the soaps. Uh, I mean, the rest of the Christmas schedule is... I just... I can't decide whether, I, you know, I've just looked at it too much or whether it just is that underwhelming, actually. There just seems very little that I really... I really want to see. Um, on the 23rd, the BBC have Loving Miss Hatto which is uh, this really, really nice thing. I mean, not only because it has Alf Molina in it, who is just always, you know, a, a treat. Dr Octopus. And, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's, um, it's, Victor- it's written by Victoria Wood, and it's about Joyce Hatto, who was a pianist who was sort of... Um, it, it's a real-life story, who, who was basically... It turned out she wasn't actually physically playing on uh, all her records... And I think it's I think it's a really nice thing. Uh, I haven't seen it since the summer. I must admit, I saw it last September, so I'm having to slightly cast my mind back. But I really enjoyed it. The script is very beautiful, and it's just a very nice, classy piece of drama uh, pre-Christmas, I think. And also, sort of classy drama. Uh, BBC has Restless, which is a two-part adaptation of William Boyd's novel, and I'm quite looking forward to that as well. But otherwise, there aren't many surprises, actually. There's a lot of what you'd expect. You know, there's a Downton Christmas special. There's a Call the Midwife Christmas special that, for me, it's too syrupy. I don't... You know, Midwife is... is, I know loads of people adore it, but I am just hard-hearted, I think, because it doesn't quite do it for me. There's a Christmas Strictly. There's a Miranda special. It feels like all the things you'd expect... I mean, ITV don't seem to be that bothered by Christmas, to be honest, on the basis of their schedules. It's tough, isn't it, for the commercial channels up against the, the yeah. mighty BBC? Yeah, and I think BBC does kind of own Christmas to a large extent. You know, you start with Carol's Almost King. as much as Jesus. Almost as much as Jesus, but I don't know. Given the last census, maybe not. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, and uh, last question. Uh, oh, I should say that uh, there's a Victoria Wood is on video talking about her... Um, Christmas BBC drama at uh, you can find that at guardian.co.uk but uh, plugs aside Homeland oh Homeland 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 <laughs> How I Once Loved Thee oh now homeland. you're bonkers and a run off with a plumber yeah, yes yes basically that um Yes, although people get so, really do get wildly passionate about this. In fact, we have a blog today which is full of people either being cross because they, you know, it's all gone wrong or cross because it's outrageous that we're saying it's rubbish. You know, it's a funny thing, but we all keep watching it. It's 24 with a jazz soundtrack. Yeah, uh, yes, although not enough jazz soundtrack, I'd argue. She Give played it on the jazz. radio, didn't she? That was uh... she did, but I was kind of like, you know, when she when she put that jazz on, I was kind of like, oh, commercial oh, break. I remember that, brilliant. And then it went away again, and you sort of remembered all those motifs from the first series that were so good, and they've been slightly missing here. Yeah, well, I, I've taken a black felt uh, tip pen to all the serial numbers on the the side of all the equipment I can find in my house, just in case one of, one of them is linked to uh, some vital part of my body that someone's once going to tap into a computer and. Uh, <laughs> And be the end of me. Uh, but anyway, uh, Vicky Frost, as ever, thank you for your time. Thank you. And uh, I'm off to set my PVR to uh, record um, uh, Snowman and Snow Dog.
<laughs> Surely that will be on CBeebies. You might. Oh, as well. oh yeah. <laughs> My thanks to all this week's guests. That's of course Vicky Frost, Dan Saber, and Lisa O'Carroll. You can leave your comments on this week's show on our Facebook wall or our blog. Alternatively, you can get in touch with me on Twitter at John Plunkett one four nine. Media Talk is produced by Mr. Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.